0: Hi, I'm Xian Xiao.
1: And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness experience.
0: The waiting room revolution starts right now. Welcome back to our In the Waiting Room With series. Today in our waiting room is uh, patient and caregiver advocates Julie Drury and Maggie Karastechi. Julie Drury is a patient partner with over a decade of experience She's been the strategic lead of patient partnership at what was formerly known as the Canadian Foundation for Healthcare Improvement and the past chair of the Patient and Family Advisor Council for the Ontario Ministry of Health and Long-Term Care. And Maggie Karasetchi is the director of CASPER, which is the Canadian Association of Health Services and Policy Research and a healthcare consultant. And she's previously worked as the executive director of the Ontario Medical Association and the director at the Canadian Partnership Against Cancer. Perhaps they're best known to our audience for being very active on social media and Twitter. Um, I'm so delighted you're here. Thank you for joining us.
1: Really happy to be here. So thank you and happy to be here with uh, with Maggie as well.
0: If you don't mind, I mean, what's the origin story of why you got into patient, caregiver and health system advocacy in the first place?
2: So I'm happy to start seeing. Um, so what I'd really like to do is to share a little bit of a bookended story with you if I can. So our story is um, of what can happen in a fragmented system. So of what happens when we lose sight of our North Star, of what happens when we talk about having a patient-centered system, when what we really mean is that we have a provider-centered system that is people-centered when it's convenient. So I'm a caregiver for my mom who lives with me and for my sister But I'd like to just briefly take you back to the beginning of the journey when I was a caregiver for my dad. Um, And I often talk about being really grateful for that experience. So I was his caregiver uh, for the year before he died, when he was 49. Um, And that experience has shaped who I am and and my choice of career and, and how I've lived my life. So with my dad, I was thrown into the role of being a young caregiver when he unexpectedly got sick. Um, We brought him to the hospital with what we thought was a TIA or a stroke, and it turned out it was a malignancy that had spread to his brain. So, you know, I had been raised, I was a a young person then, I'd been raised to believe that my voice was important, and that I had agency, but in this experience, I had no agency. So I was this full-time caregiver, yet I was overlooked, I was ignored, I was ridiculed, and I was looked down on. And I was pushed aside literally and figuratively. Um, I persisted and I vowed at that time I'd never allow my voice to be silenced again. So I'm going to bring you to sort of a fast forward to now, caring for my sister several decades later. And the reason I want to do that is the epiphany for me. So while we use new terms and we speak about patient and caregiver engagement and we have patient engagement offices that are in hospitals in fact, very little has changed since my experience with my dad. So our family still experiences um, a system that's badly broken, where the system itself is the center of planning, not the patient and certainly not the family or caregiver. I, you know, I just want to sort of end by sort of telling you a little bit about my sister's journey. So she was treated with surgery, chemo and radiation. Um, and then a few years after that, When we thought it was all behind us, she developed some odd new symptoms and had developed a a rare form of cancer that required very extensive surgery and treatment and lots of complications along the way that she still lives with. Um, So those are the things that have really started my journey here. Um, And as I say, the epiphany for me is how little things
0: have changed. Julie, how about you?
1: Yeah. Thanks, Jen. And and Maggie, thanks for sharing that. And I just want to recognize like both of us in sharing our stories, you know, we've done it many times before, but it's never easy to do and it brings up strong memories and strong feelings and emotions. And sometimes I, I seem stone cold sharing it and other times I get a bit teary and emotional sharing it. So um, it's powerful when we share our stories. So I want to thank my friend Maggie for that because I know what she's been through just the tip of the iceberg and she knows a bit what I've been through as well. Uh, my story is, you know, similar. There's overlaps in many of our patient family and caregiver stories. Um, also maybe a little bit different and unique. Um, I'm the mom of a eight year old forever eight year old who died five years ago after living with a rare disease for uh, her, her entire life, um, diagnosed at the age of four and a half and, um, has the, uh, uniqueness of being the first person in the world diagnosed with her form of mitochondrial disease and so a trailblazer in many many ways um, and and similar to maggie i mean my story is that it bookended in coming into a healthcare system as a young mother already with another child and knowing that my child was sick and the incredible amount and burden of advocacy placed on me to ensure that she got the care that she needed and the attention that she required and again, as Maggie had described, feeling quite dismissed in the healthcare system because she wasn't presenting as a typical child would, and she had didn't have a typical trage- trajectory in the healthcare system. And so there's this heavy reliance on caregivers in our healthcare system that is undervalued, underrecognized, underappreciated, um, and that reliance becomes exponential when you have any kind of medical complexity. So if you don't just have one condition, but many conditions let alone something as extremely rare as Kate had. Um, I found myself as the care coordinator. I was a system navigator. I was the one who ensured continuity of care because there was significant breakdowns in communication around her care. I was the go-between between clinicians. I was the one who ensured that there was connectivity at all levels of our fragmented healthcare system. So hospital, home care, social services, school, therapy, even funding for equipment. And um, and I I quickly learned um, what I needed to know to navigate the system. I became quite proficient in medical terminology and lexicon. Um, I, I dressed like the care providers. I made myself known in all the meetings. And I recognize that many people don't have that skill and ability. And so I made it a bit of a mission to see what I could change in the healthcare system as a family advisor, um, to work proactively with not just healthcare providers, but administrators to see what we could change together. And so that work um, that I started, you know, more than a decade ago in caring for Kate um, has, you know, has continued on and and I've had the privilege of, you know, being a leader in at the national level and, and provincially and, 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 working with some international organizations, but it's really all to try to shift a change in the system for others because Kate's gone. Um, and, and like Maggie um, just want to see things work a little bit better. And I'll also mention briefly, part of our story was around harm and uh, we did have um, a, a patient safety situation um, and the trauma around that, both for ourselves as caregivers and a family, but also for the, the, the clinicians and the administrators um, that were involved. And the need to shift our system there to not be blame focused, but to be on change focused. And, uh, and, you know, having experienced that, again, wanting to change those those situations going forward so that families don't have to and, and, and our, our healthcare providers don't have to go through what we went through.
0: So much of what you're talking about are things that we talked about in our podcast. There are episodes about inviting yourself and getting your voice heard, and also things like Tag Your Ed, which is about connecting the dots in the system and not assume it's all working together nicely.
2: That's the one I listened to. That's the one I listened to today. And it made me think exactly of our our journey, where I was the only person with all the information about my sister. Nobody else had it
0: and you And if you don't recognize that and feel like if you give if you just think that there's a coordinator, they will know that you you might be selling yourself short because you have vital information and a key role in connecting the dots. That's how we say it so um and just just many of the themes. but uh I hope anyway, it is our little attempt to try to figure out what are the keys uh, that people who did a little bit better and it's it's almost exactly what you guys have been saying, just in you know little little snippets. There's a lot
2: of guilt associated with being a caregiver as well that. Um, you know, people live with that burden, you know, and I mentioned it briefly about, you know, my sister not getting diagnosed for a year, but I feel quite tremendous guilt over that at times because I didn't feel that I put enough of the dots together to come up with a diagnosis. So, you know, I think we often, and we often feel like we don't do enough.
1: I agree with Maggie. I mean, if I could put a plug in for, for you guys as organizers, um, something oriented around, um, what's emerging as what we call trauma-informed care or trauma-informed care approach, and dealing with um, with uh, uh, with guilt and sh- and shame and uh, regret uh, for caregivers. Um, I mean, I, this goes for patients as well. Um, but I become very involved in the pediatric world around trauma-informed care and uh, and medical PTSD, and I think that. Um, the feeling of helplessness and and being stripped of your personhood. When you walk in those hospital doors, I'm no longer Julie Drury. I become mom. I literally didn't hear my name for nine months of hospitalization, isolation with Kate, because I was called mom. And, um, and, uh, and I also, I wasn't, I was no longer entirely in charge of my child. I lost actual control over decision and authority over my eight-year-old. Other people were making choices and decisions or doing two things to her or, 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 or at her, um, not always with my consent. And so I think that having a conversation about that, about, as Maggie said, that the, the incredible, uh, vulnerability and stress that that puts on decision makers, um, be they the patient or the family caregiver, I think that's a, that's another really important conversation. And,
0: Cause we've heard that. I say that, that people say they, they, they go for four years. They were with all the appointments. They never were once acknowledged, looked at, spoken to, how are you? Nothing just about the patient, the patient, the patient, which is another, it's, it's not quite what you're saying, but it is, you lose who you are. Like you, you lose yourself. Yeah.
1: We you just lose your personhood, right? Like, I I mean, I'm a pretty interesting dynamic complex person who had a, an incredible professional career and a whole other life. And, and I became mom and, uh, you know it's just even just like little things like you know you, you, like what you your the clothing that you that you wear what you access in terms of amenities like you know can i wash my face in the morning before i encounter you know 20 people marching through her room as a medical team like it's just it just it, it's a, it's such a vulnerable place to be your visitor um in someone else's home and um and it's very very awkward um and you and you compress yourself into a box personality wise and characteristics and what you say in your tone of voice to adapt to every interaction with those healthcare teams. And that is exhausting, but you have to do it. Otherwise you get into challenging situations.
2: And and to Julie's point, even things like clothing, I dressed very carefully every single morning I would go to the hospital so that I would be seen as a, a incredible, um, you know, intelligent, whatever that might be. I dressed very carefully so that I could play the part um, every single time I would go in.
1: Wow. Yeah. I would actually, when I would go to meetings, everyone had a lanyard and a suit on. So I would wear my, I would, I would dress as well for, for, especially for team meetings where I could prepare. And I sometimes put my lanyard on for my own job. It's a very strange thing to say, but honestly, just so that you, you look like part of the professional team, otherwise you're othered, you know, mom and dad are over there and here we are the clinical team. Uh, anyway, we could go on and on about that, but that persona that has to change, the, the adaptations that you have to make, um, who has the availability to do that? and the, and the knowledge to do that. And then like getting things like language and culture and racialized communities. And like, let's talk about Joyce Oshawa and what she had to do to get attention, like broadcast her death on Facebook live. I mean, this is, these are some of the nuances that we don't talk about in our system, right? Maggie and I is educated white English speaking women and even women. It's challenging, but, you know, cause we're seen as being, you know, complainy and bitchy and emotional and hyper um, you know, even how I was treated as opposed to my husband, when he said something was wrong, it was like, what? But my mom said something was wrong. Well, you know, sometimes it was characterized a different way. So anyway, it's a whole other podcast thing. But um, yeah.
0: First of all, thank you for, you know, being so open with your stories. And I can feel the the emotion that caregiving has. And you both talked about this idea that caregivers were being ignored and even ridiculed. And yet, you know, there there's this understanding that they are essential partners in care. They're not just visitors. But I feel like our system is designed in, in some ways to deny and ignore and make invisible this criti- critical asset to our, to our society. And I'm just curious, like, from your experiences, like, why do you think this is so?
1: Well, I'm happy to start. I think Maggie and I probably have a lot of congruency on this one. Um, it is how our system is structured, number one. It's structured around a clinical care environment. It is not structured around a patient-centered or patient-partnered care environment. As much as we like to use that language, that is not how our healthcare system is structured, all the way down to how we educate our doctors, our nurses, our therapists, even our administrators. And so um, we pay a lot of lip service to a patient-centered healthcare system. Um, But if we don't structure it that way, if we don't educate our healthcare providers that way and our administrators that way, we don't structure it in a way that Um, you know, caregivers are seen as part of the healthcare team and patients are seen as part of their own healthcare team and they get equal access to their health information. And, and uh, ready access to health information, um, where they are part of the discharge planning team, um, where they were part of the decision making conversations. Until we we get to that point, uh, we will always be um, diminished in the system and 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 an afterthought and a nice to have, but not considered essential. So that term essential, we press that term forward, but the system has not embraced that term.
2: So um, Julie has covered it beautifully. I'll I just have. Um a couple of things to add. So I think COVID-19 in particular has taught me some lessons about why this is so. Um, So in my experience, the lesson for me has been how easy it was for the system to revert back to old ways of doing, um, to what is seen as the easier path. So, you know, in my pursuit of good care for my dad and then for my sister as well, I've been labeled as demanding, as difficult, bossy, intrusive, angry, um, and on the list goes. And I think that in reality, in my attempts to ask questions until I was satisfied with the answers and to challenge what I found problematic, I was labeled. And often that's really difficult for people. I certainly don't like it, but I'm not quieted by it either. But I think it can be problematic. And I think as a caregiver, I know things about the people that I'm caring for that no healthcare professional, no staff member would ever be expected to know. And these things will help in developing a good treatment plan and then in watching for signs along the way. So, you know, in my view, when I think about it, I think how underutilized is this great resource to really help with outcomes as well as to help with system design? So the fact that we don't use it. Um, and why that problem is baked in has really caused me to pause. And I, you know, my conclusion would be working with caregivers, I think is often seen as time consuming and that there is a general lack of understanding about what Julie just said, which is how essential caregivers are. So I think there's a lack of awareness and a lack of understanding about the insights that we can bring to individual people receiving care and to the
0: system. Both of you touched on something that cuts to the heart of why we wanted to create this podcast. I mean, we saw and observed that there was a power and information imbalance, right? It's heavily tilted towards the healthcare system and healthcare providers. And even though both Sammy and I have spent tons of time on clinical education, we knew it wasn't moving the needle fast enough. And so we wanted to use this podcast as a way to get information in the hands of patients and families. So that they would know what to expect next, but also so that they could be more informed, be more in control, have more knowledge about what's happening and with information, and they could then change their journey and be advocates, better advocates for themselves. So I'm curious to know, do you have any thoughts on this approach where we're targeting patients and families?
1: (laughs) There's a role for for patients and families in this as well, right? Like there's a responsibility there as well. Like I recently was tweeting about you know patient-centered care and, and I had a clinician kind of like, you know, kind of toss back to me, well, patients have to take responsibility and ownership. And absolutely they do, but how do we equip them to do that? Back to your to your point. How are we educating patient families and caregivers? I'll tell you when I started on my journey with Kate, I was extremely naive and very trusting of the system. And put everything in the hands of the clinical teams. And, and I didn't recognize that I was a partner in care. And that as, as a medical mom, that I had to be very engaged. And that I had to ask questions and make choices. And that I would have responsibility in navigating the system. We don't know that. We don't educate our public about that. We, people who aren't involved like, uh, um, directly in the healthcare system in Canada think, well, you, go, you get sick, you go, you emerge or to your doctor, they take care of you and everything is done for you. And that is not the case. So we have a major gap there in educating people about what it means to be part of the healthcare system from a clinical point of view, from a patient or family caregiver point of view. Um, and, and I think the other part of it is that, um, you know, there are levels of engagement. So we have this scale called PAM, the Patient Activation Measurement Scale. And not everyone is going to be at like level four, fully engaged and really asking the questions and right in there. Don't have the capacity, don't have the language, don't have the skill, don't have the education, don't have the time. Those are all factors that contribute. And so we have to also scale our approach to a patient-centered and a patient-engaged system. We have to make sure that those people who can't 100% lean into that role have the support that they need to be coached and to be educated and to be supported in a way that's best available to them to have their individualized patient-centered care model. Um, and we just don't have the time to do that in our healthcare system right now. Um, and we don't have the attentiveness to it. And and to Maggie's point earlier, I'll be so bold to say, I don't think we have the leadership or the interest. I wanna be really frank, I don't think that it's there.
2: I think the other thing, if I could just add, um, you know, many people are afraid of the consequences of being that difficult, angry, intrusive person, you know, that's charted as as getting in the way. We worry about what's gonna happen to the care that's provided if we intervene or if we're seen as that. So I think it's really important as well for healthcare professionals to understand the meaning behind those words and those rolled eyes that we sometimes get um, and how that that, uh, strikes fear, quite frankly, into people's hearts.
1: There are serious consequences for people, right? From your your care being compromised to being alienated uh, from, uh, from 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 decision making, and, and quite frankly, um, you know, uh, ha- having very sort of um, a, a negative um, relationship with the healthcare team. I mean, there there are very serious and real consequences to speaking up.
0: Yeah, I know. I I mean, you have to only think of how difficult it is to speak up and take that kind of courage. And I will say that, I mean, I I, I really hope this tide is changing. I you know, you, I pray that it is, because I think what we have we what has surprised us about this podcast, which was really designed for patients and families, to give them the language, the tool, the courage to invite themselves, the language to use that maybe is non-threatening but could work. But healthcare providers have really come out to say, I want this language too, and I'm open to this. In a future world, I think that there are enough people on both sides, from healthcare providers and patients and families, who want a different way of of being and working. And so this is a nice tie-in to what you are both very passionate about. And you both tweet a lot about using patient and caregiver experience and co-design as a tool to change healthcare and systems and minds and hearts. Why is co-design such an essential tool for healthcare change?
2: So I'm going to start with this one. This is a big question, and it's one I'm going to answer with a big, somewhat audacious answer. So I think co-design needs to be a part of the entire individual care journey and the entire health system at every level. Um, I'm sure you can tell how strongly I feel about this, but you know, let me explain it a little bit this way. So I think that caregivers, parents, families, neighbors, those people that are providing that care have insights at both an individual care level as well as about gaps in the system that no amount of formal training or no degree or no title will give someone. You know, in fact, when I think a little bit about my journey and I think about being a patient and a caregiver and what it's brought me, it's brought me far more meaningful insights into how we deliver care in this country than more than 20 years of a career in health Um, And the more time I've spent being a caregiver, the more I've come to realize that contrary to sort of widely held beliefs, the approaches to achieve meaningful transformation and co-design in healthcare aren't actually highly sophisticated, and they're not overly expensive, and they're not overly complicated. So, you know, when I reflect on what the difference is between a system that that we have now and one that's co-designed. And I can't help but reflect on our own experience. And I I think about my sister in particular. And I draw a distinction between treatment and care. So I'd say that once my sister was diagnosed, it took a year to diagnose her. Once she was diagnosed, I'd say she received world-class treatment. And we are eternally grateful for that. But I think, in fact, she has not received world-class care. And I really believe that co-design would change that equation. And that's why I'm just so, it's not just passionate about it. I, you know, I'm relentless in my pursuit of it because of I think it's the only way for us to go.
1: You know, and just to add to Maggie and to weigh in, I think we've seen some really exceptional and novel examples of co-design across the system. Um, we have the Center of Excellence on Center for Excellence on Patient and Public Partnership at the University of Montreal. Um, they're in their third year of a master's program on patient engagement. Um, they have the uniqueness of having paid patient partners who actually work with and in the School of Medicine to educate um, all doctors from their first year uh, undergrad program all the way through their, their PGY or their postgrad years. And, um, and, and these are required courses. That are co-designed, co-developed with patient partners. So we see these, you know, these unique instances um, uh, across the healthcare system in our country. You know, I had this experience two years ago with a group of second-year university students um, from the School of Medicine, University of Ottawa. They called themselves MedEd,
0: and the premise
1: of what they were trying to do was they wanted to bring in people with lived experience to speak to them at a lunch and learn that they were pulling together. They pooled their money to have a, a bit of a pizza party, so they have a draw from their fellow students. But their issue was, we don't get to hear about patients or from patients until about our third or fourth year. And we want to start learning now. We want to hear their stories now. We want to understand how to partner in care now. So I'm quite enthusiastic about the new generation of, of providers. I think they're pushing back. I think these um, Gen Y folks and, and the ones that are coming behind are questioning Um, how they're being trained and what it looks like to actually co-design alongside a patient what their care will look like. And that's shifting medicine on its head because medicine has been doing two and four, but not doing together.
0: We're going to continue this interview next week. We'll talk about COVID, advice for policymakers, and what makes them hopeful for the future. So join us next week as we continue this conversation with Julie Drury and Maggie Karastechi. Thanks so much for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and help us get the word out. Our theme music is Maypole by Ketza. The podcast is edited and produced by me, Sien Xiao, and Kayla McMillan. Special thanks to Krista Honstra, Principal of Clarity Hub. Please go to our website to join in the conversation. WaitingRoomRevolution.com